The majority of Americans have siblings. But what do we really know about the way they affect our mental health, for better or for worse? Today we're talking with Dr. Lori Kramer, a psychologist at Northeastern University and an expert on sibling relationships. Though there is always a lot out there in pop culture about sibling rivalry among kids, what happens to sibling relationships when people reach adulthood? What can they do for us and how can they harm us? For a deep dive into surprising findings, you'll want to listen to today's baggage check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice. I am glad to have you here today. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about the record for the oldest item returned at an L.L. Bean. So let's get to it today. I'm very excited for this conversation because I've always thought that if I write another book, and no, that's not happening anytime soon. My sleep deprivation is doing just fine on its own. Thank you very much. But I always thought it would be interesting to really tackle the topic of siblings if I wrote another book. I think we have such a great dialogue about siblings in childhood at times as a culture, but I'm always struck by the fact that we don't talk as much or nearly enough about managing sibling relationships in adulthood. And yet I have seen firsthand for decades how much the sibling relationship impacts adults for better and for worse. I've seen so many people personally, professionally, had a lot of clients struggle with sibling issues at ages 35 and 55 and 85. So I wanted to go straight to the source and talk to an expert on the subject. And did I ever get an expert on this? Her name is Dr. Lori Kramer, and she's a psychologist at Northeastern who studies precisely these aspects of family dynamics. She talked about some studies that she and her teams have done that absolutely blew me away. So without further ado, I want to give you our conversation. Here it is. So Dr. Kramer, I am so glad to have you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Baggage Check. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So one of the reasons I was so excited to talk with you is because I feel like sibling relationships don't get as much attention as they should, especially among adults, right? I think when we look at the parenting books out there, when we look at the parenting discourse, there's a lot of stuff about siblings and sibling rivalry and all of that. And I'd love to get into that in terms of children. I know that you do a lot to help kids that are struggling with that. But one thing that has always struck me in my clinical practice is that I have a lot of adults whose sibling relationships are really making or breaking their lives. And if they're in therapy, a lot of times it's breaking their lives. You know, there might be really difficult conflicts. There might be estrangement. There might be mental health issues. There might be concerns, financial discrepancies, feeling taken advantage of, battling for parents' attention, just like they might have been in the back seat 30 years before when they were kids. Um, is that something that you notice as well, that the conversation about siblings sort of drifts off and that adult sibling relationships don't necessarily get their due? You're absolutely correct about that. It really seems that we, we tend to forget about the importance of these relationships, yet these are people 
that we grew up with, that we spent many years, probably more than 15, 16, 17 years living in the same household, having shared experiences. These are people who know you so well, um, and they certainly understand a lot about you because they understand exactly how you've grown up together. But yes, as siblings get older, you know, it makes sense. They develop careers or get involved in work. They have romantic partners. Maybe they have kids. The focus tends to be less so on the sibling relationship. And it seems that it goes, I guess I would say on the back burner and mm -hmm. maybe not really acknowledged for the potential that it holds to help individuals have happier lives. We tend yeah. to overlook that. We really do, because as you point out, it's such a unique relationship, right? It's one of the few relationships that exists sort of throughout the course of life. And somebody, for better or for worse, who has seen you develop from a really young age. And it's mm -hmm. safe to say most of us have siblings. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the, the typical, yeah, at least in the United States, the yeah. typical American family is more than one child. Um, so it's a it's a relationship that most of us have. Mm -hmm. And yet, as you say, you know, at some point, it sort of fades, I think, from the public eye in terms of importance. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that, you know, I struggle with when I'm trying to help people because there's not as much discourse about it. I can't say, oh, well, here's these million books that have been written on adult sibling relationships, right. or here's these dozens of support groups about it. Right. Can you tell me how you first got interested in, <laughs> in this type of work? You know, you do so much work with family relationships, and yeah. sorry if that's too personal a question, but I'm always oh, no. curious <laughs> what, what drove people in to study what they study. Well, you know, I, I do have a wonderful relationship with my sister, so that's one piece of it. But actually, um, I got involved in all of this because I was really interested in young children and how mm. they cope with stressful events in their lives. Mm. And I um, was particularly interested in children's relationships with other children. You know, we all know about how parents help kids address stressful things in their lives, but we really hadn't paid much attention to children's friendships. And that was something that I became very interested in and started to look at how these friendships are helpful to kids when they go through a transition in their lives that are somewhat stressful. And so I proposed my dissertation proposal to look at the effects of friendships when kids were going through a parental divorce. Oh. And I brought, I, you know, I wrote this up, I brought it to my advisor, who is the wonderful Dr. John Gottman. Oh. And he looked at me <laughs> and he said, Lori, <laughs> this is all great, love this idea. But you know, when people are getting divorced, it's such a stressful time for families, they don't want you in their home. They don't want you talking to their kids. They don't want you so involved mm -hmm. in all of this. And he was actually the one that got me excited about this new research that had been going on actually in, in Britain by the great Dr. Judy Dunn, looking at mm -hmm. the transition for children who were first becoming siblings. And oh. so she had done this wonderful work looking at the changes in families when kids became siblings 
She had written this book. I read it. I've just, you know, ate it all up and thought this would be a wonderful transition to study because it is stressful for young children as they become siblings and their friends can help them through this transition. And so that's, that was my longitudinal dissertation, which I don't, you know, recommend that other people do, but I've been studying these families for years. And so it's been really, really exciting. And in fact, I'm hoping to go back and find these families again. Um, So I studied 30 families whose moms were pregnant with their second child in their last trimester of pregnancy. And I, these families opened their homes to me. I was able to come in. I did videotapes of the new siblings interacting once the baby was born. I also had the firstborn child had playdates with their best friend. And we tape recorded those playdates when no adults were present, which was amazing. You know, what kids do when no one knows what they're doing. And then I analyzed those audio tapes And we used that uh, and found that the quality of children's friendships, how they played with other kids, was an incredibly strong predictor of how well they were going to get along with their siblings through every observation time point that I studied them. And so that really helped me think about the social and emotional competencies that kids develop that can mm-hmm. help them establish positive relationships with their siblings and probably other people in their worlds too. So a long answer to your question, yeah. Um, yeah. but thank goodness for Dr. Gottman and, and pointing me to this incredible new field. Oh my goodness, it's so interesting because I've talked with so many people whose research stories have a twist of that nature, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, somebody else said, maybe I should look at this, or this didn't particularly work out for this reason, and then Mm -hmm. I stumbled upon this. So Mm -hmm. I love that. And I also, you know, I... I'm so passionate about friendships that it's so interesting to hear that your research spans that connection between the social and emotional aspects of friendships and also with sibling relationships, because it makes sense. It stands to reason that you're looking at some of the same skills, you're looking at some of the same benefits, you're looking at the same deficits. So how long how, how long ago did this research start? I love a good longitudinal study. I get, I get so excited, like, let's find these families, let's keep this up for the next 30 years how when did it begin so you know you must remember i'm only like 29 years old but um, (laughs) (laughs) i figured you started your research when you were about three so that made sense that's the only way this math will work but um i started um with these 30 families as i said way back in 1984 actually okay Mm -hmm. so um I followed them by going and visiting them in their homes every two weeks for the first nine months. Mm -hmm. I came back at 14 months. I came back again when the second born kids were the same age that their older siblings were when they were born. So about three to five years of age. And then um, the last time I've seen them was when the older children were leaving the home for college. (gasps) or work, oh, yeah. and the younger children were entering high school. And what was fascinating was that the quality of their friendship interactions before they became siblings predicted how well, how positively they were going to interact with their siblings 
at every time I went back to study these families. So um, I'm eager, I'm working on a proposal now to go back to find these families. The children in the families, the older kids are in their 30s, and I know that some of them have children. So it's going to be really interesting to do this multi-generational book and um, sibling qualities. Oh my gosh, because I imagine some of those social emotional qualities are going to affect their parenting too, right? I mean, it stands to reason that the Mm -hmm. positive qualities and then the qualities that are more challenging, if they're embedded in personality to some extent, are going to start manifesting in all kinds of ways, right? At work. And I mean, it it reminds me of one of the sort of grand poobahs of of longitudinal research in terms of that longitudinal study. You know, the Harvard study following and and really recognizing that the quality of relationships among these Harvard undergraduates in Mm -hmm. their 20s predicted lifespan, predicted, you know, and I'm I'm sure it's bi-directional in terms of what Sure. What? But and I relationships that. made a difference in that yes. study as well. <laughs> yes, any kind of really solid relationship. And I think yeah. that it's so important. And maybe that's it's something to, to get into now. This I think we tend to put relationships in a bucket, right? We say, here's the friend relationships, here's the family relationships, here's the romantic relationships, here's the work relationships. In reality, for a lot of people, sibling relationships are their friend relationships, mm-hmm. right? Or then for other people, it's like they've tried to make that happen and, and it doesn't happen. Do you see in some of your research that the strong qualities of a friendship and the strong qualities mm-hmm. of a sibling relationship tend to look very similar in terms of the significance of people's, yeah. the significance that people have in each other's lives? Yeah, it's so interesting. Right now, we're, we're working on a study I have some incredible students, including a set of twins who are undergrads here at Northeastern University. And together we decided we had to do a twin study. And Mm -hmm. so we've been looking, doing interviews with college students who are twins and looking at their decisions of what we're looking at, how they form their own identities as college students, as young adults and how much of their identities relate to how they perceive their siblings' identity, which is kind of an interesting question. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at these twins and asking them questions about how they make decisions about going to college, their major in college, their future plans, you know, vis-a-vis their relationship with their twins. And we're hearing from so many of them that at least for them, this sibling relationship is the major friendship of their lives. Mm-hmm. So that idea of, of sibling relationships and friendships being entwined really seems to be so true for many, not all of them, but for many mm-hmm. twins. Yet at the same time, they're working hard to figure out who they are in relation to their twin. And, you know, we've heard some of them say things like, I just can't imagine going through life with this, without this life partner, you know, mm. that this is just such a key informative relationship for these young people. So it's going to be really interesting to put this together and try yeah. to address that. I don't think that we're going to hear that so much when the, when the siblings going off to college may be of different ages, so non-twin right. relationships. 
Right. Because twins really bring something unique to the table yeah. in terms of the yeah. sibling relationship. Are you looking across fraternal and identical twins? Both? Yes. Twins so of different sexes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what we what patterns emerge from this, but it's a qualitative study. So we're basing this mostly on what stories people want to tell us about their experiences because I don't really feel like we know enough about the twin experience, um, the social aspects of twins. Um, there's a remarkable researcher, Dr. Nancy Siegel, who's done some wonderful work with twin relationship. And in fact, she, mm -hmm. she talks about some twins having this, the kind of relationship that she calls friendship extraordinaire. And, you know, we were seeing some of the same things in our interviews with these with these young people, but we'll, we'll see how much we can really pull apart in terms of zygosity, whether they're fraternal or identical right. twins and gender, I think is also going to be a very major factor. Right. Oh, it's so interesting because it also speaks to the heart of, uh, you know, that, that psych research holy grail of of environment versus genetics, yes, right? Yes. Since fraternal twins don't share the genetics to the same extent that identical twins do. And yet right. a lot of fraternal twins might even look identical. A lot of them share the they same do. environment in the way yes. that typical siblings do not. Oh, well, that is fascinating. Yeah. You know, and twins, of course, especially fraternal twins are growing more common. So it seems really important that somebody is doing this yeah. research, you know, more and more families have twins in part because of, um, you know, different ways of arriving at a birth and, and more interventions mm -hmm. in terms mm -hmm. of infertility interventions and support with that. So yeah. that sounds fascinating. I'm thinking about, you know, obviously there's different family sizes too, right? Mm -hmm. And in general, mm -hmm. families in the United States are a little smaller now than mm -hmm. they used to be a couple of generations ago. When we talk about sibling relationships in general, there's also a lot of stereotypes about mm -hmm. birth order, mm -hmm. right? And and I was the youngest of three. I have children, <laughs> three, three children myself. So I've heard it all in terms right. of, oh, middle child this, youngest child yeah. this, oldest child this, yeah. you know? On a very general level to start us off, are there even any basic <laughs> truths? I mean, I know it, it seems like a lot of pop culture kind of perhaps yeah. over-exaggerates, yeah. you know, some of the trends that you see. Oh, in large families, the oldest will be this way. I mean, obviously the size of the family matters, but right. my take has always been to assume that some of the individual family characteristics override these broader stereotypes. I mean, what does yeah. the research say about that? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. There's no definitive statements here, but I think that, first of all, birth order is not a horoscope. <laughs> you know? So just because you're a firstborn does not right. necessarily mean that you're going to be the most gifted act academically in your family, mm -hmm. all those sorts of things I think you have to take with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. But what I do think is true is that the family, its organization, its dynamics, who's, who's there to parent you, who's there mm -hmm. when you are born makes a huge difference. So the social and the family environment when a firstborn child arrives is very different than what that third mm -hmm. child experiences. And so I think it's very important for us to think about the family environmental piece, um, the interpersonal dynamics that emerge as more people join yes. a family. Um, and I think that plays into the kinds of experiences that 
that children have. Being that firstborn, parents are figuring this out for the first time, and they really want to get it right. So a lot of attention (laughs) (laughs) and screening and love and care, you know, all those things are devoted to that first child. The second child comes into a different family environment. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, parents are a little bit more experienced. They're not Mm -hmm. experienced in helping two children develop a relationship. So those are new skills, new challenges, Mm -hmm. which can be quite stressful for parents. Mm -hmm. So they're grappling with some slightly different issues there, but they know how to diaper. They figured all that stuff out. They know how to feed their child and keep them alive. So that second child has a totally different experience than the first one did, which may contribute to some of the differences we see in personality characteristics and in just sort of their orientation to the world. And then as subsequent children come into the family again, you know, they're going to be Mm -hmm. entering a family that's much more child oriented. And, um, you know, in some cases and in certain cultures, there's an expectation that the older children will take more active roles in caring for younger children. So culture Mm -hmm. also plays a factor here. So again, it's not magical. It's not a horoscope. (laughs) But really think about the family environment. I think that's really important. Yes. Oh, it's so true. You know, I've known people before who say, well, I raised all my children the same. I don't And I'm thinking (laughs) that's impossible, right? I think of bringing my oldest. Their kids are not the same. (laughs) Exactly, because it's that constant interaction. Your kid with a different personality brings out something different in your parenting. But yeah, I think of bringing my oldest home from the hospital after he was born. And, you know, this this perfectly clean, nice home with been <laughs> prepped for baby, brand new gear. We're playing light classical music in the background. And my husband and I are, you know, both attending to his every whim. And then by the time my third was brought, the home that my third child was brought home into, it's like, oh God, there's a choking hazard over there. Kick it out of the way. Your two, you know, your two-year-old and four-year-old brother and sister are fighting over this toy. Oh, somebody forgot to make lunch. And now they're You know, it's like so different. And I think the other thing you mentioned that really strikes me is the relationship piece, Mm -hmm. because I think even between two kids, three kids, four kids, five kids, you know, whatever you have, I think one thing that people don't seem to talk about very much in my experience is that the number of individual relationships Mm -hmm. starts spiraling out of control. You know, like a lot of my, my friends have two children. And so at any given time, there's, there's one dyad there. There's one relationship. There's one set of grudges. There's one, this person (laughs) is mad at this person. There's one, oh, this is the dynamic going on. Just one. Right. right? But the second that you add a third (laughs) child, there are now three different relationships at any given time. It triples. So these two might be getting along, but this one is not. Or these two are triangulating with the, you know. And I think that was really eye-opening for me. That was something that I think nobody talks about very much. In terms of the difference between, for instance, two children or three children is four children, is that the number of relationships to manage just starts getting out of control. Yeah. Right. And I think that's exactly at the heart of your research, it seems like, is how do these relationships, what are they affected by? And then also, how do they then go back to affect the kids? Because I imagine some relationship patterns are like 
a self-perpetuating dynamic. <laughs> you know, it starts out this way and then this conflict leads to them both being maybe more irritable, which then makes for more conflict. Yeah. I mean, there's so much there. There is so much there. And especially in young childhood, it is very fast paced. We're talking about very dynamic interaction mm-hmm. patterns. You can, I mean, think we've all experienced this, that sometimes kids will break into a fight and you have no idea what started mm-hmm. this. They might not even be able to tell you. And it could be, you know, one of those classic mom, he looked at me, you know, sort of situations. <laughs> he touched me, that sort of thing. So almost anything can launch young kids into a conflict. And it's very interesting with siblings, things, conflicts can just end too without Mm -hmm. any clear resolution, without any clear intention to stop. And that's very different from what we see in young children's friendship relationships, where there needs to be a little bit more work Mm -hmm. paid to managing the conflict, to maybe apologize or at least give a reason for why you are insisting on this or why you disagree about that. To preserve that relationship so that this friend wants to see you again in the future requires Mm -hmm. a little bit more work and some more social and emotional competencies. We don't always see that with siblings. They're more understanding that, you know, you can get angry at someone and then it's over. Um, But very interesting differences in that respect. But if you're really trying to understand what's happening and try to predict this with siblings, you'd have a lot of work ahead of you because it's very dynamic. (laughs) Um, You know, I think we clocked more than seven to nine conflicts, extended conflicts within an hour. Um, (laughs) Were you in my house? Was that a... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's just sort of, it's happening a lot. um, Yeah. You know, and I think parents are challenged with trying to figure out how to respond effectively. And so we've done some studies to try to look at that and try to figure out what really tends to help when siblings are having conflicts and what doesn't tend to help. Yes. And I would love to get into that because I feel like it's an area of helplessness for a lot of parents Mm -hmm. because it's you can't escape, right? And, right? and that's the beauty and the bane of sibling relationships, like you said, right? <laughs> you it's, not, <laughs> it's not like a friendship where, okay, you know, there's a chance this person's not going to be your friend anymore. So let's right. really target how you're going to fix this situation. With siblings, it's like, nope, they're going to be there at dinner tomorrow, whether you want that or not. And so I think for a lot of parents, when their kids really are struggling to get along or struggling with a certain dynamic, it can be so devastating because it feels like you're on this never-ending slog and it can be very easy to feel hopeless and helpless right. about it, I think. So so what would you say some of your research has illuminated as, I, I hate the phrase best practices, but that's kind of what we're <laughs> after, right? Yeah. What, what can yeah. parents keep in mind in this scenario of things they can do to help or things that maybe aren't going to be so helpful? Right. So we did this fun study, I thought it was fun anyway, Mm -hmm. where we went into families' homes three times. We wired kids up with wireless microphones and let them have free reign of the house. One of the parents was stationed in the kitchen where we put a receiver. So parents could hear uh, exactly what the kids were doing. 
and mm-hmm. we basically asked them to listen to what the kids were happening and please respond as you normally would. Um, so one time we came just to practice to get everybody used to the scenario. We didn't you know, use that information at all. The next time we randomly picked either the mother or father to be the person to listen. And the next time it was the opposite parent. I should say that before we did this, we had parents separately fill out a questionnaire for us about their beliefs about how to best respond to sibling conflicts. Mm -hmm. And it was Mm -hmm. so interesting because what parents told us that they thought were the most effective ways to handle conflict with their kids was to actually come, talk to the kids, get each kid to tell their side of what was going on and work with them to come up with kind of a solution that they both felt was acceptable. So parents felt like that was the most effective strategy. What they thought was the least effective strategy was doing nothing, Hmm. just ignoring it. And in the middle was basically strategies where they were asserting parental control or authority, telling the kids to stop fighting, separating them, threatening them Mm -hmm. with punishment. That was not seen as terribly effective. So what did we see when we actually did this? Mm -hmm. The opposite of what parents Mm -hmm. thought they should do. So the most common response was to do nothing. Even though we know that they could hear when the kids were (laughs) fighting, they chose not to. Yeah. Um, They told us in the questionnaires that they did not feel very confident in their ability to actually intervene and do the things that they thought would be the most effective. And so it kind of paralyzed them. They chose not to to intervene. Mm -hmm. And so another strategy that parents use sometimes, which I found to be actually pretty effective, was something called active non-intervention. So Mm -hmm. parents go when kids are having a fight, they make their presence known, they say, hey, I see you guys are having an argument. I think you have the skills and competence to be able to manage this conflict. Please do that. I'll be down the hall if you need some help. I'm happy to come back and help you. But let's see what you can do to solve this on your own. And that's the competency that was linked with more success in ending conflicts than Mm. doing nothing. So we also took what parents did and looked to see what happened next. And the most successful strategy in helping kids end their conflicts was parents coming in and doing something that I call collaborative problem solving, talking with each kid, getting them to explain their point of view, working out a solution that they both feel is okay. The second most effective strategy was that act of non-intervention, of letting kids know, hey, this is a time for you to use the skills that you I know you have, um, yeah. and I'll help if you need. But the least effective was the, the passive non-intervention of, of ignoring the conflict because the conflict just continues and in some yes. cases escalates, gets more intense, yes. more frequent. And that's truly the beginning of what we call a coercive cycle that could be very dangerous for kids in the long run. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our work since then 
has been to help parents develop the skills they need to be able to help their kids do the things that they believe will be the most effective. And we find some success in that respect. And teaching kids those competencies directly as well. Right. It's so interesting that the parents on some level knew, on a very large level, knew that doing nothing probably wasn't going to be helpful. And yet, that's what they commonly ended up doing. As you said, they didn't feel like they necessarily had the confidence to actually do the right thing. And so it kind of paralyzed them a little bit from acting. I think so, but it's also a lot to ask parents. I mean, I'm not suggesting that parents intervene every single time kids fight. That is exhausting. That is way too much. But Mm -hmm. that's why I think a strategy of working with kids to make sure that they have those skills to be able to manage conflict is number one. And then, you know, when they are engaged in conflict, you can either, you know, wait a little bit to see if they're able to manage it or do that active <laughs> uh, non-intervention of coming in pointing out that this is a time to use those skills because sometimes kids don't, a lot of times kids don't make that connection and then yes. see what they do. And sometimes parents need to stay with them and really coach mm-hmm. them through this. But if they can learn those conflict management skills with their siblings, it's not only going to help them develop a more positive relationship, it's also, I believe, going to help them have more positive friendships and other relationships beyond the family. And we see that parents themselves feel a lot better about all those sorts of things. If they're less stressed, if they're feeling like the situation is more under control, it's going to increase, you know, harmony for the entire family, ultimately. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that there will never be conflict. In fact, I can promise you there will be. (laughs) And there's actually um, some significance, some developmental significance for having conflicts with siblings. Kids learn Mm -hmm. a lot from having conflicts with siblings. So we never want to eliminate, you know, them totally, but rather we want to help kids develop skills so that they can manage those conflicts and all the negative emotions that come with conflicts so that they're better prepared for whatever life brings them. Right. Yeah, that last point speaks so much to, I think, part of what we see with sort of toxic positivity. You know, the parents who say, oh, you, the kids are just supposed to be happy all the time. And <laughs> if they express these negative emotions, it's it's bad. And it, and how much that backfires, you know, when we, yeah. when we teach kids that having uncomfortable emotions is inherently dangerous or scary or wrong or bad or a sign of weakness. We don't teach them how to manage those emotions. And it sounds like a very similar thing with conflict. It's going to be inevitable. We don't have to pathologize it and say it's the worst thing in the world that there's conflict. We have to give them the tools to actually be able to handle it when it arises. Because I imagine those tools transfer to marriage, to the workplace, to a college roommate, to somebody that they're dating, whatever it might be. Those tools are so important. And I think the past few years, probably a lot of this stuff has gotten more challenging, right? Parents are more burnt out. They became more burnt out during the pandemic. You know, you can just imagine the exhausted parent trying to work from home, kids schooling from home, they're hearing their ninth conflict of the hour, and they're thinking, I, I can't. 
I, I give up. I can't right. deal with this. I'm supposed to be working. This is untenable. But when they get the skills and they're able to have a little bit of a confidence boost, maybe it'll make mm-hmm. them feel a little bit more effective and less helpless. Yes, absolutely. You know, this line of research really led us to understand how important emotion regulation competencies are. Mm. And so as we developed our program, More Fun with Sisters and Brothers, that was a key aspect that we realized that, you know, there are some skills in managing conflict that are not emotional, but the emotional part can really, I don't know, bring kids, waylay kids, you know, kind of lead lead conflicts to feel that they are unmanageable or feel kids feel that they're overwhelmed or so you know so frustrated and so we intentionally teach kids and now we teach parents to teach kids um, various strategies for managing that those emotions that they're experiencing Mm -hmm. during conflict or at any other time of the day when a, a sibling frustrates them Mm-hmm. or whatever else is, is going on. And we're finding that kids can learn these emotion regulation skills as young as four. That's the youngest that, that we've gone. Mm-hmm. And that when they increase their ability to manage these difficult emotions, not only are they feeling better, parents are reporting enhanced behaviors, the sibling relationship quality improves, but then parents also told us that they were feeling better, that mm-hmm. their own abilities to manage their own emotions were improved. And that's that's really important because I think that parents need <laughs> some yes. ways to address, you know, this overwhelming situation. And as you said, it's only gotten more challenging for parents yeah. to be able to, to handle this. Yeah. That's so key for the parents. It becomes, you know, such this beautiful sort of snowball effect, I can imagine, where the parents feel more calm, more able to handle things. Because I'm sure some of these parents never maybe were were taught emotion regulation by their own parents or they had various relationships with their own siblings that maybe have skewed what they think is normal or what not. Right. And I think it's so hard to escape sometimes the lenses that we're looking through and recognize that they might be a little bit distorted because of our own experience. Right. It's actually becoming. (laughs) We did this fun study um, looking at moms and dads Uh and asked them about to remember back and talk about their own sibling relationships and basically to, you know, complete some questionnaires for us about those relationships. And then we observed their kids, their own two children and their family. So we observed the the quality of that relationship as well. And actually, because we were looking for intergenerational patterns and basically what we found was really surprising for moms. Mm -hmm. The kids who had the most positive sibling interactions tended to have moms who reported unhappy sibling relationships in their childhood. And the opposite was true for the kids who had the most difficulties. Their moms tended to report neutral or happy relationships with their siblings. And when we delved more deeply into why this was, because we were a little surprised by that, 
It made sense that it was the moms who reported more negative sibling relationships in their own childhood who had some ideas about why it was hard. And they worked mm -hmm. really hard with a lot of intentionality to change that narrative for their kids. So moms yeah. who talked about, you know, their parents engaged in a lot of differential treatment that they felt mm -hmm. was unfair of the kids in their family. Um, those moms worked really hard to be meeting their kids' needs in ways that were perceived by the kids to be more equitable. Mm -hmm. um, moms who reported that their parents engaged in more inconsistent types of parenting, discipline, were much mm -hmm. more intentional about being consistent. So things like that. The moms who had a happy relationship in childhood didn't really think it, they had to do a whole lot with their own kids. Yes. And that's very understandable. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they figured that out <laughs> when their yeah. kids um, started to express some difficulties. Interestingly, yeah. none of this worked for dads. So um, it, you know, there were no significant patterns for dads. And, yeah. The dad part is <laughs> but it's kind of disappointing and interesting. The mom part, it's kind of beautiful in a way because it, it speaks to a theme that comes up with a lot of my clients who are are thinking about having children who think maybe if their childhood wasn't any good or whatever, they don't have the script. How could I be a good mom when my own experience yeah. as a kid growing? And we always try to reframe to exactly what you're talking about, mm -hmm. which is being aware of where things fell short, being aware of some of the problems actually is going to make you more mindful right. in trying to be a good parent. Right. I think sometimes it's the ones who have the easiest childhood and the, you know, super duper picket fence, everything was dandy, that maybe they are not aware that that's not automatic. Right. And exactly. that if there are going to be kinks, they're going to have to really troubleshoot how to actually be active in working through them rather than just assuming that their kids will get along and that everything will be great. You know, same thing with marriages. A lot of people say, well, I don't know how to be married. My parents had a horrible marriage. And it's like, okay, well, you're also aware of the ways in which your parents' marriage was horrible. So you can be proactive. And so the mom's part of your study really seems like a beautiful success story of those moms being able to put that knowledge into practice and to use their insight to make things better for their own kids. <laughs> the, da the dad part, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know exactly what to make of that lack of results with the dad, except maybe, I, I don't know, is there an implication that maybe fathers don't impact the social emotional relationships of their kids with each other quite as much as moms no. do? I don't know. I don't think that's true. I think dads mm -hmm. are critical. Mm -hmm. um, dads do a lot to help kids learn how to manage difficult emotions. The mm -hmm. kinds of, just as a you know, one example, the kinds of vigorous play that dads yes. tend to engage in with kids that moms tend not to. Boy, mm -hmm. that can be really helpful in helping kids experience a wide range of different feelings and emotions and learn to exert mm -hmm. some control over it. So no, dads are critical. Mm -hmm. um, are they as reflective in thinking about their past experiences with siblings mm -hmm. and how it might make a difference for their kids? That is where I don't know. Um, okay. But I hesitate to call dads non-reflective <laughs> because yeah. so many are, you know, of course. wonderful at, at all of that. But, you know, this study may have captured the fact that there's 
just huge differences in dads along those dimensions. And when you put them all together in the mm-hmm. sample, they might cancel each other out. Right. So I never want to underestimate the the power that dads yeah. have to help everyone in the family yes. <laughs> lead happier lives. For sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot mm. of sense. And no unintentional knocks to dads on and my no. part too. <laughs> Um, thinking about, you know, these kids grow up, right? These kids grow up and, um, kind of like what I was saying earlier. And then I have the adult version, excuse me. I have the adult version sitting in therapy with me, living out maybe dynamics that have existed Mm. since they were a kid Mm. or sometimes having new struggles. You know, I was always close with my sister and now she's married somebody that I don't like. Yeah. And our relationship is tanking. Or my brother and I were so tight and now our political differences mean that we don't get along anymore. Or my sister is struggling with substance abuse or, or something like that. You know, I see so much of that struggle. To, to start us off thinking about adult siblings' relationships, maybe on a positive note, you know, what, what does the research say about what positive aspects good sibling relationships can bring yeah. even through adulthood? Absolutely. So we know that siblings can be incredible sources of support, love, and caring for mm-hmm. each other. And that need for support doesn't end in childhood mm-hmm. um, or adolescence. And in fact, as people begin their adult lives, maybe have kids or balancing lots of different demands, profession, kids, in-laws, all those sorts of things. You know, I think having siblings, particularly those that you have a lot of contact with, and if you're really lucky, live close to you, um, can provide a lot of um, tangible sources of support as well as emotional sources of support. So yeah, they can listen and they can understand Mm -hmm. the challenges that you're facing. But my goodness, wouldn't it be great to have someone who's just like able to come over and cook a meal or invite you over for dinner or, you know, just, you know, knows you so well that you don't have to make a big federal case about what you would like in terms of help. They would know a lot about that. So I think that level of understanding, the ability to provide support um, is so important. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that carries through adulthood. We know that women tend to live longer than men. Um, Mm -hmm. Having a sister in older adulthood in particular can be incredibly helpful, even in Mm -hmm. terms of being linked with greater health and lifespan, having access um, to that kind of support and caring. All of this, of course, becomes even more important when parents are no longer to be able to be helpful, Um, either because they have their own needs or perhaps they have passed away. And so I think the sibling relationship at that point can really gain prominence in some Mm -hmm. helpful ways. It's difficult to sustain it when everybody is so busy. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't know anybody who's not busy (laughs) managing a lot of things, but if some, you know, there can be some traditions, routines built into one's life that build in these sibling relationships, I think everyone will, will thrive. Yeah. It seems to speak to the importance of even just kind of the routine sort of boring keeping in touch, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Like building in a weekly phone call or or even just having a a sibling text thread just to kind of make each other laugh. And and, because I'm thinking, you know, 
so many of us don't live near our right. siblings. And maybe there are a lot of listeners right now who are thinking, well, yeah, I would, you know, I would love to have dinner with my brother, but it's just not going to happen because he's across the yeah. coast. But part of yeah. what you're speaking to really says, try to invest even in the smaller things to keep the contact yes. going and, and build them into a routine, some sort of ritual so that they're, they're there cons- yeah. consistently rather than having to reinvent the wheel every time that you right. want to try to get in touch. I was listening to an interview with one of the twins in the study that we're doing. And she said, you know, I love the fact that I can text my twin about the fact that I just ate a delicious sandwich. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like, she would appreciate and understand yeah. why that's significant. If I texted that yes. to a friend, they would think I was nuts. Um, <laughs> but I was like, you know, it's just sort of a mundane sort of thing that, keeps that connection going yes it keeps the communication open and it in a strange way even though it's just about a sandwich it really represents the sense of being understood Mm. by someone you care about Mm -hmm. and that's the i think one of the main foundations of relationships is feeling understood and valued by someone you care about that validation is so yeah powerful just being seen for who you are this person knows me they love me and we might have our conflicts but they they get me and they respect me yeah i think one thing that flies in the face of some of the positivity is the question of estrangement right Mm -hmm. like i i work Mm -hmm. with some people um, who truly are estranged from siblings. Maybe it's new, maybe it's been for a long time. And there's no doubt that in some extreme situations, there's no doubt that that's got to be the healthier choice I'm imagining. How do you how do you help people sort of figure out how hard to fight to get this holy grail? You know, we know that sibling relationships can be so amazing. We can also surmise that in some situations, It's just not going to be capable of having that for whatever reason. You know, if somebody is trapped in a scenario where they want to be closer with their sibling, but there have been rough waters, where they want to develop more intimacy or closeness, they want to build something, or maybe they had been not speaking for a while, it's not really estrangement, but they've drifted apart. How do you help somebody come to terms with the question of how hard to try? Because I think... You know, the prize does sound so beautiful, but I work with so many people for whom that prize isn't realistic. And I wonder how we navigate that question of of when to let it go, right? Oh, it's such a difficult question yeah. um, for all the reasons that you just described. I think one of the things that's really important is for people to assess for themselves what they've done to try to repair this relationship. Because, you know, I think at the end of the day, you want to walk away feeling like I did all that I could. I did, and I needed to protect myself, but I did all that I could to try to have communication, to try to explore or to repair the relationship in any which way. But my experience, especially with families of adolescents, is that people don't talk about these issues. They don't talk about what's truly troubling them. Um, When we've done studies about adolescents' perceptions of being treated unfairly, 
differentially from their siblings, we find that they just don't talk about these issues. And, you know, there's one study in particular where we interviewed mothers, fathers, and two adolescents in the family, and they agreed about the occurrence of differential treatment only about 33% of the time. They were all concerned about it, but they didn't talk about it. So we have different perceptions of the events that we've experienced, even with people that we have intimate relationships with. Without communication, mm-hmm. we're not really allowing ourselves the opportunity to question, to explain ourselves, to give rationales, to confront things that may have been unfair or mm-hmm. mistreatment. And so I think that exploring all routes for opening up communication about these difficult topics is really important. And I believe that in many cases, maybe not all cases, but in many cases, they may really need the objective help of mm-hmm. a counselor, or therapist, mm-hmm. or someone else that they trust who can um, help them explore these issues, manage, you know, all the very intense emotions that come with them but to at least, you know, open up dialogue before you walk away. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. And it's also so hard, like you said. You know, some mm-hmm. of these I feel like are the greatest taboos, mm-hmm. right? To actually have a real conversation as, you know, a 35-year-old or a 55-year-old that, mm-hmm. you know, I really feel like mom always loved you more than she loved me. I mean, that can be excruciatingly uncomfortable for people. And I think the gap just starts to widen more and more. You know, you mentioned earlier in terms of what a support that siblings can be when a parent has passed. And I'm imagining that's also a critical time in either direction. I can imagine it bringing siblings really close Um, that shared experience and then that reliance on each other afterwards that they are sort of the keeper of the family history after their parents are gone and they're the only ones that remember that time that when we were eight and the car broke down and we went and got ice cream or whatever. But also, this is when I also hear when the, the parents are in ill health or towards the end of their lives some of the greatest, most heart-wrenching conflicts, right? You didn't do your part in taking care of dad, or I can't believe that you ended up with, you know, grandma's jewelry because mom said you could have it. I don't think that's true. You know, really, really ugly stuff. And I wonder, you know, is there anything that that parents can do, should parents be having these difficult conversations <laughs> too, knowing what a landmine this can be? You know, how can parents prepare their kids to be there for each other yeah. when this difficult stuff comes? Because, I mean, it could last 20 years that a parent could be ill or, or needing care and right. resentments building that only the daughter is doing her part and the son is just, you know, checked out or whatever. What can we this, be is doing? A, this is a lifelong task. So mm-hmm. when I interviewed mothers who were pregnant with their second child way back when and asked them, you know, what are your hopes for your children's relationship? Mm-hmm. You know, 90% of them said, I just want them to be there for each other. 
particularly when I'm not able to be there to help them. And so I think from day one, you want to help them develop the kind of relationship where maybe they're not, you know, friendship (laughs) extraordinaire, but Mm -hmm. they care about each other enough. They respect each other enough. They have enough contact and communication with one another that they can work together constructively to manage whatever challenge is ahead of them. So that's why I've, you know, gravitated towards more of prevention of of trying to help families establish the most positive relationships they can in the hopes that things will continue to be Mm -hmm. positive across the life course. But you're absolutely right that the time of a parent becoming ill or disabled is usually the time where siblings have to deal with each other again Mm -hmm. um, around these sorts of issues. And the more that, you know, we can try to avoid the conflict by, you know, parents having a more explicit plan (laughs) about what they think would happen or who gets what or all those sorts of things, making their own decisions about, you know, where they would end up in terms of, you know, needing, if they need nursing care, where would they go? If they needed, mm-hmm. you know, burial plot. So parents can help avoid some of yes. that through planning, but I think it all comes down to siblings being able to communicate effectively about these issues, to share the burden, to share the responsibility and not place that all on one child regardless of whether there's one child who's clearly one parent's favorite or not, um, there still needs to be open communication and dialogue and problem solving about ways to do that. Again, you know, people may need help figuring that out and that's fine. Yeah. It strikes me that it's almost like a co-parenting relationship at that point between siblings. You're almost parenting your parent and you want it to be civil that even if they're not the best of friends, Mm -hmm. that they're able to communicate and manage conflict for the parent's sake, the parent that needs taken care of. It's almost like this weird photo negative of (laughs) divorcing parents who no longer are going to be married and they're no longer going to have a fantastic relationship, but they need to be able to work together for the sake of their kids, right? It's like... Yeah, it's more business type relationship, I Mm -hmm. would say would be, you know, you Mm -hmm. want siblings to be close, but not all of them will be. Right. Um, And there's circumstances that might come in the way of them being close. Mm -hmm. So how can they still work together despite those differences or barriers? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really seems like some of the psych principles about emotional health in general are always Mm -hmm. at play here that some folks might not be able to have this perfect relationship with their siblings that brings so much to their life, but they can also use all of the tools of wellness and the tools of psychological health to be able to mitigate the damage, at least, that a conflicted relationship does. And it seems like, you know, you've given so much hope for the positive aspects, too. Uh, I think, you know, it's really beautiful the way we we think about the potential because it is unlike any other, you know, and I I do a lot of of speaking and, and work on friendship and how beautiful that can be. And there's no doubt that that is so crucial to our lives. But I think it would be disingenuous to not acknowledge that the sibling relationship is like no other. It has the potential, again, for that history to be there in such a way 
that virtually no other relationship does for I think for a long for a lot of people it's by far their longest relationship right because it starts since early childhood or birth depending on where they are in the order and can go through the end of our lives whereas romantic partnerships marriages our relationship with our parents they're not in our lives as long right. yeah hope is yeah. hope is is critical here and um you know, a lot of the research, including my own, has shown that if you start out with a less positive relationship and don't do anything about it, it is likely to stay that way. Right. But there are ways to improve these relationships that pay off. There's always hope. And I think sometimes we forget and kind of assume that sibling relationships are going to be conflictual relationships or mm -hmm. ambivalent relationships with mixtures of positive and negativity. That's probably true. But the goal, I believe, is always to increase the positivity in these relationships so that there's a, more, a lot more positive stuff going on than the negative, even though the negative will be there. And there mm -hmm. are tools and resources and help and therapies and counseling and all those sorts of things to help people make those sibling relationships as rewarding to them as, as they want them to be. That's such a beautiful note to end on. And in fact, you offer a program to help with sibling I relationships. I Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah. So this is a program right now. It's available right now online for parents who have children, these two children in the four to eight age range. And it's a series of online lessons, there's four of them, that teach you all of the social and emotional competencies that I've been referring to today. Um, this is part of a research study, so we do ask you to fill out questionnaires for us at the beginning and the end of the program so that we can learn as much as we can about how the program is helpful or what we need to do to improve the program to better meet families' needs. But this is free, it's online, you can do it at your convenience. And if you're interested, check out the website funwithsistersandbrothers.org and see what you see. And there's a, a very short application form if you're interested. Marvelous. It sounds like such a great resource. And of course it helps further the general study of all this too and allows yes. you to help more people. Yes, well, I've loved this conversation. I really thank you so much, Dr. Kramer, for having spent this time. I think you've given people a lot to think about. And, you know, we could probably do a whole nother episode on only children, too, and the yeah. <laughs> lack of siblings. But it's been fascinating to think about how siblings matter and just the depth that they can bring to our lives. So thank you again for having been Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts? We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Marity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care.